What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Sarah, thank you very much, and welcome, everybody, to Overtime. I'm Scott Wapner. You just heard the bells. We're just getting started from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. Big earnings on tap as well today. Applied Materials, Palo Alto, Gap about to hit. Our experts, of course, are standing by with all you need to know, and we'll see very much how these stocks move in over time. We do begin with our talk of the tape. Bullard's buzzkill for the bulls. That's what we're calling it. The central bank's resident bomb droppers saying rates might need to go a lot higher than many of you expect. Stocks initially sinking on that statement, tried to fight their way back, did a pretty good job by the close, as a matter of fact. So what does it all mean for your money and where this rally might go from here? Let's ask Adam Parker. He is Trivariate's CEO and founder with me on set. What did you make of, it's good to see you, by the way, what did you make of what Bullard said? You know I'm not surprised that they're going to stay hawkish, right? I mean, 7%? That's like uber hawkish. Super duper hawkish. Listen, I don't know. You know, they have to stay hawkish and they're going to stay hawkish for a while. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is you see what the market's going to do when they actually get dovish. You saw the huge move late last week, uh, positioning, sentiment, et cetera. But I think everyone knows they're going to stay hawkish. And so there's a short term I need to participate, but a medium term, I don't really believe that, you know, they've handled all they're going to handle when it comes to inflation. Yeah, but is the short term even justified? Is getting is positioning more bullish justified right now or not? I don't think so. I think um, you've got some positives and negatives. As we talked about, I still don't know here at 39.50 if the next 10% move in the market's up or down. I think I've got some ideas to outperform it either way, and that's mostly what I've been focusing on with people. But honestly, how can anyone say that we have declining earnings, probably an eroding backdrop? I've got a quantitative tightening. I've got a hawkish. Fed that I think has got to stay hawkish to really stamp out inflation. Why, you know, I've got some weird stuff happening in financial conditions, crypto, missiles. I mean, I got a lot of things I'm a little bit worried about. So it doesn't feel like a great time to take risk to me. But so the ra- so the rallies days are numbered. It sounds like you're painting a scenario in which this Listen, doesn't last that very long. I, I think most people I talk to think it's a bit of a triple-breaking putt. Yeah, maybe we get a little more positioning rally on this dovish stuff, but then we're facing like a, mi- a medium-term sort of pretty big guide-downs in January. Things are slowing. You're starting to see some squishiness in the consumer and other areas. On the other side of that, maybe we can be okay. So I think everyone's playing that triple-breaking ba- putt sort of outlook. My own personal opinion is uh, 4% earnings expectations of the consensus for next year. That's probably a little bit too high. And um, I've got to focus either on cheap cyclicals that can earn their way through that and prove the balance sheet or things that can grow through it and, and try to outperform. We're looking at applied materials right now. It's one of the stocks that has earnings uh, here in overtime. And you obviously see the move higher uh, in a space that has done extraordinarily well of late. Look, this one was up 40% right. in a month, in right. one month. Right. But the stock's up right now. We're going through the numbers, and our reporter's going to come on and give you the, the details exactly what, what the story is uh, here. It looks to me like a, a, a beat, right. at least on the bottom line. And we'll get you know, the specifics coming up. But how about this space, which a lot of people think is too frothy now? Yeah, I think they, 
The stocks really got hurt in the middle of the year, went down a lot. People know China could be a problem, demand's a problem. On the other hand, there's probably seven or eight companies, and AMAT's one of them, the world can't function without. You need these guys in the medium and long term. And so I think you can be, you have that sort of long-term bullish, short-term word about an inventory correction issue. Uh, and some of them, you know, you saw it with Lamb a couple weeks ago. They got it down, the stock went up 10% because people feel like, all right, maybe there's more estimable, you know, achievable estimates now. And I kind of like the story in the long term. You think the worst of the concerns in this space is over? I mean, you no. used to be a chip analyst. I, think, I, I like to remind people of that yeah. every time you have, yeah. you know, a specific insight into this particular industry. I think one more down revision after this one's probably the base case, and then you have sort of better setup for the second half of next year, and people trade the stocks three to six months in advance of that, so you're getting kind of close to that. Our reporter's good on this now. Steve Kovac, what do we see here? You can see shares going up here, Scott. It's a beat on the top and bottom lines and pretty strong guidance here, too. So let's go through the numbers. Uh, EPS coming in at $2.03 versus $1.73 adjusted expected. Revenue also a beat, $6.75 billion versus $6.45 billion expected. Uh, and guidance, it's a big range here for EPS, $1.75 up to $2.11, $2.11 versus the $1.83 adjusted looking for from the street. And revenue also above expectations for the Q1 guide, $6.7 billion at the midpoint of the revenue expectations versus $6.45 billion expected. So beat across the board and really strong guidance for applied materials here, Scott. All right. Good stuff, Steve Kovac. Thank you. Talk to you again in in a few. Are you surprised, though, at, you know, even the fact that the stock's up near two and a half percent after it was up 40 percent in a month? It's an interesting move. I could easily see a sell on the news on something like this, but in fact, at least at this moment, you never know how things shake out. It's not doing that. Yeah, a little, little better than people thought. Uh, and um, business that the world needs long term, I think people are gonna buy that right now. They're looking for reasons to buy good companies. And um, if the fundamentals aren't falling off a cliff, maybe they feel better about it. Well, Palo Alto's out too. Uh, can we see that one? Because that is a, uh, a favored stock yeah. among many. Now, that stock is down less than the market on the year, but it hasn't participated in the most recent rally that we've experienced, too. Uh, we're going through that one as well. And you can see the stock's uh, it's volatile, obviously, after hours here in overtime, but it's uh, reacting negatively. So we'll have to get inside uh, that one and see. What, what about tech in, in general? Where, where does it stand here in your mind? You know, it's funny. Palo Alto is an interesting one. Our work shows it's among the most crowded stocks for bottom-up stock pickers. People have high conviction because they like security. They do. They feel like the budget's not going to get cut there. Analysts come on and they call it like Dan Ives calls it a table pounder, loves right. the name. And, and the buy, you know, we have a proprietary way of looking at high conviction. Do people have more than 3% or more of their long AUM in a name? Palo Alto's consistently been one. So if it disappoints, you could see some selling just because we know it's so crowded. Generally in tech, you know, I'm of the mindset that, you know, we're around market weight in the S&P index. I'm really worried about the things where inventory is built, select equipment, select hardware, um, the commodity semis. You saw a little with NVIDIA. They still have to clear some stuff out in data center. So you don't like the growth trade. I mean, let's just be honest, right? I think it's got to be quality growth. What is that? Uh, You know, um, some of the semis we talked about, you know, I think some of those two stocks is that applied materials and lamb. Synopsis, lamb, KLAC, AMAT, uh, right. those kind of businesses. I think you can find some, um, you know, I would call it, you know, fintech, you know, maybe you like Visa or PayPal, things that are going to grow through a slowly eroding economy. No, none of the, you didn't say any of the mega caps. 
I think the mega caps to me are risk management, not alpha. Like, you can't tell me, hey, I know something about Microsoft that nobody else does. I can explain 84% of its returns from some macro factors. So I need some allocation to that 20% of the index so I don't take huge risk. Oh, oh, so Most, you, you still consider those to be defensive? I just think if, if you're trying to beat the S&P and they're 20% of the S&P, you can't own none. That'd be crazy risk management. You got to own some of them. So you're close to market weight. And I can tell you from investors, I talk to the one people want to believe the most is Amazon because they think that they have more of the capex behind them. They can start to monetize some of the investment. And if they show a little bit of progress on the margin front, you know, it, it could be parabolically higher. So that's the one people want to believe the story in the most of the of the big ones. All right. So we're going to hear from uh, Frank Holland uh, in just a moment. He's following Palo Alto Networks for us. We still got Gap, by the way, Williams-Sonoma, uh, much debated space in retail. Some have, some have not. You got inventory issues, and we'll find out everything going on there. Now, let's bring in CNBC contributor Stephanie Link of Hightower Advisors, Lauren Goodwin of New York Life Investments. Ladies, it's good to see you. Lauren, I'll begin with you. You're sitting right here with us. What about you uh, and this rally? Did Bullard just give us a reality check today of why it's not going to last much longer or, or, or not? Yeah. Yes, I think that's the case. Look, as, as you said, as the economy slows, and it's going to continue to slow because the Fed is still active, that is when we're going to see the earnings downward revisions, still some, some volatility in the equity space to come. However, I would, I would switch on the fixed income side of the story because we are starting to see a little bit of stability, despite what Bullard said, on where the terminal rate is likely to cap out. And that makes fixed income increasingly interesting, especially when inflation is high, that carry is starting to look really attractive. High yield wasn't that great today. I know it's a space you like, though. What about it, though? I do. High yield, from my perspective, is, is less about the economic cycle and more about the structural benefits in the asset class over the past couple of years. Many high yield issuers, first of all, really took advantage of the Fed policies to extend their maturity walls, to build up their balance sheets. And a lot of the middling quality or lower quality segment of the high yield space has moved into the private markets, moved into the leveraged loan space. And so this is a completely different asset class than it was a decade to go. Really interesting, high quality, high yield. All right. Uh, our Frank Collins, good on Palo Alto. Frankie, what do you see here? Well, hey there, Scott. Uh, shares of Palo Alto now in the positive. They dipped after the initial result, even though the company reported inline revenues and a pretty strong beat on EPS. EPS more than 10 cents above estimates. Also, pretty strong forward guidance when it comes to earnings. The revenue guidance was inline. The earnings guidance, however, was strong when it comes to EPS. Looking deeper into the number, the billings were in line with estimate. Uh, free cash flow was above estimates. So just looking deeper into the numbers, why the stock dipped initially. Uh, again, right now, a beat, uh, excuse me, revenues that were in line, a strong beat on EPS, 10 cents above estimates. Shares of Palo Alto Networks now up 2%. We're going to continue to dig in these numbers, Scott. All right, good stuff. Uh, hear from you again. So, Stephanie Link, I mean, look, you take NVIDIA yesterday, which some characterized as good enough. You take these, um, some of the others we've gotten. I guess we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for earnings to substantially deteriorate because they don't really seem to be to this point. Well, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that the earnings guide will be more, the downward revisions will be more in the first quarter, second quarter kind of thing. Um, right now, these stocks are still down quite a bit year to date. So maybe these are relief rallies. I mean, everybody knew applied materials numbers because they pre-announced when they talked about China restrictions hurting them $400 million in the next two quarters. At that time, they pre-announced numbers. So 
we kind of knew it was going to be ugly. We also know that wafer fab equipment spend has been coming down dramatically from the 90 to 100 billion range over the next two years to 70 to 75 billion. So you have to hear what they have to say about that. But I think the expectations are pretty draconian. And the stock's pretty cheap, 14.8 times. Now, on Palo Alto, the stock's not cheap, 49 times for it, forward estimates. But if you could do a 22% billings number in line, people mm -hmm. were thinking, there was whispers that they were going to do less than that. And they did mid-30s last quarter. So um, we expected a decel, got the decel, wasn't any worse than expected. So maybe you have a pop. I still like the cybersecurity space. You know I'm involved in Fortinet. Yeah, Fortinet. Um, but yeah. overall, overall numbers, they, ha they are not coming down as much now. They're going to come down in the first half of next year. AP, your, your thesis is kind of built on the fact that earnings are going to deteriorate rather dramatically into well, next year. Yeah, we got 4% growth now, $232 of the S&P numbers for next year. Lower than where they were? They were 252 in June, so they're coming down nicely. Right. Um, I think that the, the real issue, you know, we keep talking about is this isn't going to be a V-shape like the prior cycles. I don't think it's going to be economically V-shaped, and I don't think the earnings are going to be, be V-shaped. There's some, we, you know, we have an expert next to us in the economy, but like next year the autos are probably be up even though the economy's slowing. You can't show that historically will happen. You have some weird stuff in industrials where- GM raised their guidance today. Yeah, you have some weird stuff. Day. Yeah, you have stuff in industrials where they couldn't sell what they, that was demanded earlier, so it's going to be a little bit prolonged. So I think earnings continue to erode lower. And I think they don't necessarily snap back in, in 2024 that much. And I think that's why, you know, you have to price stuff and say, can they earn more in 24 than they had now? And is it cheap and reasonable? The good news is there's a lot of stocks that trade below 15 times earnings that could be reasonably attractive. And you're seeing some private guys come in, Blackstone with Emerson, KKR with Vodafone. Mm -hmm. They're telling you the public markets might be a little cheaper than the private markets. So that does, that does help and create a little, you know, kind of ability to pick some stocks here as well. How much, Lauren, are stocks really in jeopardy here? Over the next, I don't know, couple months. Let's let's give that time frame for people. All right. I think that the third quarter earnings that we're seeing roll out now are a real transition point for equities, and I do think that we see some jeopardy ahead. I mean, look, you're seeing top line still strong, but bottom line increasingly under pressure and growth starting to slow. That growth is going to continue to slow, especially, in fact, over the next couple of months. So then the, the question is, how do you find resilience against the higher costs that we're seeing, against the volatility that we're seeing? And I think quality, which, which you've spoken to a lot, is one really important way. The other is, where are the stories that are going to structurally benefit from this once in a hundred years, I hope, pandemic that we've been living through? Mm -hmm. Um, and so the structural growth stories are where we're looking to as well. You've got to stay invested when inflation's this high. Steph, what, what's, the, what's the most frothy area of the stock market right now? I still think defensives are very expensive. That's staples, utilities, REITs. Um, I, I just think that paying... 23, 25, 26 times forward estimates, while I understand those estimates might be more steady and stable, that's still quite high. And so I still prefer the cyclicals. I think technology is absolutely in no man's land after the 10% te rally it's had. So I think you want to be very, very selective selective there. Listen, I just wanted to get back to one thing in terms of kind of what the Fed is doing and, and why I think the first half of the year um, we're going to see the earnings revisions instead of, you know, between now and the end of the year. We, we know housing is, is falling over, uh, rolling over hard. We got an architectural billings index yesterday for the month of October that went into contraction for the first time in 21 months. That's important because it's a leading indicator for construction and just in general activity. So we've got to really right. work. We have to really watch this stuff. And, I, and that's one of the reasons, these two reasons, big time, along with higher rates, 
are reasons the numbers are going to have to come down, but I don't think they're coming down mm-hmm. into the first or second. Speaking of building and housing, you told us to buy the home builders, what, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, and then we got rid of it this past weekend. Yeah, the shortest trade of my career, two-week Why trade. Why so fast? Stocks went up a ton, and I, I think the earnings are going to collapse in January when they report. I think they finished the work in process. So it's funny, I recommended them for two weeks, and I think I got lucky, but I guess I'd rather be you know, right for the wrong reasons than, than you know, uh, wrong for the right reasons. You know, we wrote a note Sunday saying, look, it's two weeks, but they got a lot of outperformance, and I just think they're going to get on the call in January and say, cancellation rates have been massive. And I mean, I, I just saw today, I think I swear that the, the, the stat was like mortgage rates dropped the most since yeah. 81, something yeah. like that. They're yeah, down to six, six and, and some. Half, well, right, yeah. I mean, it's significant nonetheless. At least they're trending back in the right direction if it's lasting. The cancellation rates for the builders are going to be massive in Q1. And so I think it's one of those weird things where the earnings might surprise. It's that triple breaking putt again. I think the earnings might surprise people how bad they are. And then it's not, oh, wait, they'll clear out. You still need structures. We'll get another sh- We'll get another bite at the apple there. I, mean, I agree with Stephanie too broadly. I mean, we're pretty aligned. I mean, I, I think these staples and and, and, and youths are the most frothy part of the market. and really don't make sense when yields are where they are here. I'm hearing as well that uh, I think Gap and Williams-Sonoma are both out too, going in opposite directions. Uh, as you see, Seema Modi's going through this, but you do have Gap up six. You have Williams-Sonoma down eight. Obviously, different product mixes. And, and apparel, for one, has been a really tough place to be. You yeah. want to be in any apparel names? Well, are, I, are they on your super list? You know, we, we, we pitched uh, a short idea recently. I did at, at an event just where, I, where the inventory is high. I, I continue to think that, um, that the consumer is going to slow and that businesses that have rising inventory will disappoint. And there's just some businesses that, for whatever reason, trade at high multiples for a sustained period, and people are willing to tolerate it. One I would highlight is like Lululemon. Like, why do they have to trade where they trade? They have high inventory, and they have, and they well, can't. they like a all. premium brand, though. Premium brands have been doing better than than others, right? Is that fair? Some, some. We'll see. I mean, maybe you know, maybe. Um, um, I mean, LVMH. Yeah, LVMH. You're, you're right, but I think you know, I would worry when that when my inventory goes up 80 percent year over year and my sales go up 20 into a holiday season that, by all experts' accounts, isn't going to be great. What what's overly frothy to you? Are defensives as as frothy as Stephanie Link? suggested? Is it time to get out of the builders? I mean, what are you looking at that says, okay, this is one area I'm most concerned about now? One of the things that we're using a little bit differently in our framework is trying to think about the durable themes across sectors. So where are we going to see, um, even if, for example, utilities, we expect to to come under pressure, where are we going to see outperformance? Infrastructure, because we mentioned utilities, is one of the areas that I think is particularly interesting. It's communication, it's digital infrastructure, it's in some cases traditional energy. It's, uh, It can think outside the box a little bit about where within these sectors that are expensive it's worth playing, and that's one of the areas in which we have high conviction. You know, Steph, we started out this conversation by suggesting that, you know, Bullard gave us a body blow uh, earlier today. And then I'm like kind of thinking, like, who cares what he says anyway? I mean, we got <laughs> CPI and PPI were good reports. You're going to get another report before his last voting meeting, by the way. His last vote for 22 comes at the December meeting, which is the day after. The decision is the day after the next CPI report. The data is going to dictate what the Fed does. Not Bullard. Not, not what they say. Watch what they do. That's going to be most important. Well, I would agree with you, but we didn't just get Bullard today. I and mean, he, he said a minimum of the Fed funds at five, five and a quarter, and maybe 7% is appropriate, which is just jaw-dropping. Um, but it's also, you know, Waller had said, well, it's not, it, 
one CPI print does not a trend make. Jefferson's talking about where we have to fight inflation versus price stability. I mean, these are really yeah, jawboning, jaw- though. They're jawboning. They're, jaw-boning. they're, they're jawboning, but it, you know what? They're behind the curve, and now who knows if they are going to stop, right? That's number one. Number two, inflation on an absolute basis is still quite high. 7.7% CPI is nothing to cheer about. An 8% PPI is nothing to be excited about. Year-over-year numbers. And wages are the stickiest part, and they're still at 6.1%, according to the unit labor cost figures. So inflation is still high, and they can't stop and start and then lose the confidence that they will lose from investors and from around the world. So to me, I get it. The data is slowing. I just mentioned two data points. I'm worried about that, too. Of the offset to that, is initial claims and jobs continue to be strong, and that's giving them the cover to be this yeah. hawkish at this point in time. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is how I'm rationalizing it, and this is why the market needs chopping. We got a big move in Gap. Uh, it's up 11%. Seema Modi, what's in this report? Hey, Scott. Well, earnings of $0.71, cents, not comparable, but revenue was a beat at 4.4%. billion versus the estimate of 3.8 billion. Uh, It did see an impairment charge of $53 million tied to Yeezy Gap. That is a Kanye West brand that they shut down following his anti-Semitic remarks. Uh, Pricing pressure and increased promotional activity, of course, has been a concern for this company. But in the press release, the company's interim CEO, Bob Martin, he really talks about how they're sharpening their focus on execution to optimize profitability and cash flow and bringing more rigor to our operations and balance our assortments in response to what our customers are telling us. And he says they are seeing early signs of improvement. Uh, for the third quarter, they did end inventory uh, $3.04 billion. That was up 12% year over year, Scott. And just looking at comp sales, better than expected overall. Uh, it was up 1% for the third quarter. Estimate was for it to come down by 3.2%. Banana Republic up 10%. Old Navy down 1%. That was still better than the estimate of it falling 7.3%. Back to you, Scott. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, Seema, thank you very much. We'll get back to the retail story in just a moment. But we do have news to bring you now in overtime, uh, a leadership change at Visa. Uh, Al Kelly, the CEO, is becoming the executive chairman of the board. He is stepping down as CEO. That is just announced by that company, who also announces that Ryan McInerney, uh, the president of Visa, will become CEO. He's been president since 2013. Mr. Kelly has been the CEO since 2016 when he took over, you all may recall, uh, for Charlie Scharf. So he is going to now become and transition into the executive chairman of the board as Visa makes a change there. Uh, By the way, uh, you should tune into Squawk on the Street in the morning because both of these gentlemen, Al Kelly and Ryan McInerney, are going to be on Squawk on the Street in the morning. It's funny because in the conversation we were just having, uh, Adam Parker had mentioned Visa as one of the names on your like list. Do you you have a comment here about a change? I I don't. I just want to try to square all what we're saying together. And and, and the way I think about the world is a year ago, we started getting worried about um, inflation. It wasn't until March the Fed lifted off. The average stock, the median stock had a 22 times forward earnings then. It's 17 now. If we're two-thirds of the way through, I think you expect another two or three multiple contraction points. That gets us around 14, 15 times. So if earnings are 215 or 220, the market's pretty overvalued still here, and I think you can be much more excited about buying credit than you would be equities here. That's the framework, and then within that, I've got to find equities that can beat the market, and I don't want to lose sight of that. I get dovish for a minute, I get hawkish for 
that's the framework in which you got to operate because the Fed's still going to raise rates. Just a postscript, too, on the visa transition announcement. This is all going to be effective uh, February 1st of, of next year when uh, Mr. Kelly transitions to become the executive chairman of the board. Uh, Ryan McInerney, again, the current president, is going to assume the role of CEO. So we'll keep our eyes there. We'll pay attention, of course, to the interview tomorrow morning on Squawk on the Street when both of those gentlemen will appear. Back to this uh, move in Gap, Steph. Gap's not a stock on your list. I mean, I, I think you have a TJX. Why, why not Gap? Why not now? I mean, the, the stock up a lot the last month, and clearly they're figuring something out if it's up 11% now. Well, I mean, expectations are really low. The stock's down 31% year to date. Um, I, I'm worried about the low end consumer, right? I mean, Walmart said a lot of their sales came from the higher end consumer. Um, so did Target. So I and so did TJ. Uh, they always do, by the way. So I'm worried about the low end consumer. I'm worried about the inventory levels. They were up 36% last quarter. Uh, and gross margins, I mean, last quarter, gross margins fell 880 basis points year over year. And we're forecasting for another 400 basis point decline this quarter. I haven't seen the numbers. So maybe the stock is rallying because maybe the, one of those pieces are a little bit better. But it's still really bad, Scott. There's so many high quality retailers, consumer stocks that are on sale, that have been consistent, that have good balance sheets and good free cash flow that I'd much rather. That, by the way, very disappointed in Target, but I'm not going to sell it at 8.8 times EV to sales. We can talk about that at some other point. Lauren, last word to you on the consumer. Uh, depends what kind of consumer business you're running, I suppose. That's exactly right. And, and as the consumer, I do expect to come under pressure. It's all about exactly as, as, you're, as you're laying out. How do you find the companies that can either weather the volatility or who help you build resilience against inflation in the equity side of your portfolio? As we've discussed, if that's likely to see continued volatility, how do you create buffers there? And that's an area where we, we are looking for stocks that can provide reliable cash flow, whether through dividends or just cash flow into their businesses. Good stuff. Great conversation. I enjoyed it. AP, Good to thank see you. you. Lauren, we'll see you back here. Steph, I'll see you a little bit later. We have some meta business to take care of a little bit later on in halftime overtime with Stephanie Link. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know which area of the market looks the most frothy right now. We asked our guests, now we're asking you. Is it semis, industrials, or healthcare? Head to CNBC Overtime on Twitter. We'll share the results coming up later on in our show. We're just getting things started in overtime. Up next, Goldman's year-end playbook. Tony Pascarello breaking out his forecast for stocks the rest of 22, plus what he sees coming in the new year. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. OT right back. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. 
All right, stocks pulling back again today on a sharp rise in yields. My next guest says while the market could rally into year end, it may soon be time to sell into that strength. Joining me now, Post 9, Tony Pascarello, Goldman Sachs. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Scott. Good to so be here. So we have like good seasonals, right? That's what people say. Well, it's a great time of year to, to buy stocks historically, but bad Fed speak. I'm calling it that because it's hawkish and it's, you know, obviously not great for stocks. So which wins out? I think it's a fair characterization. The way I would think about it is separate flows of positioning from fundamentals. Flows and positioning, I think, actually really pretty healthy right now. Who's buying? Corporates in a big way hedge funds, and retail. So we see that picture very clearly through our franchise. We can unpack any of that if you'd like. So you're, you're saying that, that people are adding risk right now? The biggest, the, biggest, the biggest variable in that equation are corporates. So we think there's going to be a trillion dollars of stock buybacks this year. That'll be a record. Our activity is running 2x where it was a year ago. That could be $10 billion a, a day. November and December is the best two-month period of the entire year for stock buybacks. So that's your heavy. Hedge funds chasing a little bit, and retail still on net a better buyer. $34 billion into equity mutual funds and ETFs over the past month. So, so flow fund dynamics, I think, look pretty healthy. Technicals and seasonals, as you say, probably favorable from here to the end of the year. Then you have the fundamental story. Uh, okay, because I was going to ask you how long the runway is for, for all of this. I mean, if we're painting a picture, which many are trying to paint, of a five- to six-week possibility of a, of a move, and then all bets are off because reality smacks you in the head. I think you want to be in position to sell strength in the new year. And I say that because of the fundamental piece, which is on one big picture, what governs the stock market. It's the multiple and it's earnings. So mm -hmm. all year, the story's basically been because of the Fed's knockdown, drag out fight against inflation. It's been pressure on the multiple. That's the move from 25 to 15. Feeling a little bit better about that, as you say, over the past week or so. Then you look at the earnings side of the equation. And that's where I think the sentiment has turned. For Q3 earnings, when you take out the energy companies, they were down 5%, so very high-profile misses at the top of the index, mm -hmm. and then very big negative revisions to 23. So in a way, I think you've just swapped one challenge for another. What, what about what Bullard said today? Are we full—I mean, look, Goldman had added another rate hike to their map just yesterday, right? Hotsius did that. So you guys are still expressing a, a hawkish view on where you think— the Fed is going to be and how aggressive they're, they're going to remain. How's that factor into everything? So our forecast, 15 December, then three by 25 next year, February, March, May. May was the new one. May's the new one. So you're at 5% come May. That should be the terminal rate. Um, I well, think for the uh, Fed. Maybe you should tell Bullard that. You know what's interesting about Bullard? He's generally had the right call. He's been aggressive in front foot. Now, he's a short timer, but he's generally been one of the people to follow. And I think part of what he's saying and part of the challenge for the Fed is they have to keep the pressure on, right? Because if they don't, financial conditions are going to ease. What we saw last week was the third biggest easing in financial conditions in the past 30 years. And so if the Fed wants to get the tiger back in the cage, they can't declare an all clear anytime soon. Okay, so it's kind of, we've been saying, well, listen to what they say or pay attention to what they do, not, not so much. Uh, what they say, uh, maybe they're not going to be able to get to where Bullard throws out that he Five thinks they might have to. Is that plausible? Yes. Do you see a scenario in which they go that high? Well, I don't think they want to, because I think you would introduce the risk of probably breaking more things along the way if you end up at, say, 7%. Um, I, look, here's the deal with the Fed. Uh, they're at three and three quarters. Again, we think they're on their way to five. Headline inflation is still 7.7. Seven. Core is still 6.3. They're still missing the mark by 3x. And so they still have work to do. And I think if you're the chairman um, and it is your legacy, mm -hmm. you need to basically keep that pressure on financial conditions 
what I feel like I'm hearing you say is they don't want the stock market to go up. They so, don't want they may not want it to crash, but they don't want it to go up because in doing that, you loosen financial conditions, you you juice the wealth effect and you ignite all of the stuff that you're trying to stop. Is I that think, fair? I think it's one of the big variables in the equation. So for us, and Bill Dudley, who was on the Yellen Fed, the Bernanke Fed, when he, when he was our chief economist, he built the financial conditions index, which is still a big part of the way I think they look at how to transmit policy. So what is it? It's stocks, it's bonds, mm-hmm. it's corporate credit spreads, and the dollar. So when you have a week like last week where stocks rip, bond yields drop, the dollar gets killed, and credit spreads tighten. It's antithetical to what they that, what they need to, to to have happen in the markets. When you say sell the strength, like when that moment comes, what's number one on the list to sell in terms of, of in terms of sectors. sectors? Yeah. Well, if we're if we're if we're working from the 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 point that we think the Fed's going to keep the pressure on, I still think it's those long duration parts of the market Tech. that have been under pressure Growth. all year long. I think that's right. Even the big ones. Well, you know, again, I think I think that is where, I mean, that's a big part of the market. That is a very big part of the market. Um, I do think, again, that was really the reveal in Q3 earnings, wasn't it? Uh, that they're just not sustaining mm-hmm. what we expected them to sustain. Take a big step back. For 12 years, that was almost the only game in town. A lot of capital went into those names, compounded for all the right reasons. Yep. And then you have the surprise. And so I just think it's kind of a little bit of you're finally starting to work some structural length out of those names, and it could take a while. Because you could play offense and defense at times in, in, the, in that same area. Uh, it's great to see you again. Thank Thanks, you for being here. Thanks, yeah, Tony Pascarello, again, Goldman Sachs. He is the global head of hedge fund client coverage. Time for a CNBC News update now with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hey there, Scott. The suspect in the racist shooting at a Buffalo supermarket will plead guilty to some 25 charges, according to an attorney representing victims' families of the 10 people who were killed. The attorney says those pleas may be an attempt to avoid the death penalty. Lawyers for the suspect and prosecutors say they can't comment because of a gag order. WNBA star Brittany Griner has begun serving her nine-year prison sentence in a Russian penal colony. Her lawyers say she's trying to stay strong and trying to adapt to this new environment. Bill Gates says his foundation will spend $7 billion in Africa to improve health, gender equality, and farming. The new funding will go out over the next four years. And Scott, get this, a piece of baseball history is up for sale. Aaron Judge's record 60-second home run ball is going up for auction later this month. Bidding will start at $1 million, but the auction house is looking to set a new record by topping the $3.1 million paid for Mark McGuire's 70th home run ball. And CBS News reports that the guy who caught the ball, Scott, has already been offered $3 million for it, and he turned yeah. it down. So he's clearly hoping for something bigger. That's I an investment. I think he may get it, too. Yeah. I mean, the way the collectibles have been going uh, for the past you know, couple of years now, the environment's a little bit it's different. Crazy. But baseball cards and other stuff has been just crazy. So we'll see. Contessa, thank you. Sure. All right, that's Contessa Brewer. Up next, the next big opportunity in bonds. New Fleet's Dave Albright. He tells us where he sees real upside for your money right now. OT is coming right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
We are back in overtime. Rates rallying today on the back of some hawkish Fed talk. And with that move, our next guest is finding real opportunity in fixed income. Joining us now, David Albright. He is the CIO at New Fleet Asset Management. Good to see you again. Hey, Scott. Welcome back. Talk to a lot of people lately, some of the biggest investors in the world about opportunities in credit fixed income. And I want you to listen to what they told us over the past week or so, and we can react on the other side. Listen. The 10-year Treasury is overvalued by about 200 basis points in yield. In other words, it could fall a couple of percent in yield if there's a recession next year, which is kind of what the model seems to be predicting. So that's a pretty interesting way of maybe making some money, but it allows you also, by owning those securities, it allows you to buy this bombed out credit market. Lately, I've been buying some of these treasuries and sort of amazing once you get paid for it, right? So you get, we, we got we got over, or you know, you put it in certain areas, we, we got 5%, so we have that. We especially uh, have increased our exposure to uh, high yield and to uh, longer-dated credit uh, investment-grade securities. We continue to be overweight credit. Uh, we continue, uh, you know, we're going to hold our existing positions. All right, so the implication is that you've had an almost unprecedented opportunity in, in fixed income yep. because of, of what the Fed is doing. You agree? Does it still exist? Absolutely. We still have, you know, right now we have some of the best values we've seen in fixed income going back to the global financial crisis. IG corporates, you know, yielding 6%, leverage finance yielding anywhere from uh, 7 to 10%. Uh, emerging markets, high-yield emerging markets, 13.5%. And can't forget muni, Scott. You know, IG muni's taxable equivalent yields in the mid-sixes, and then we have a high yield yielding over 10%. It's funny, you say munis. Let's just focus on that area just for a moment because it's one of the things I asked Jeffrey Gundlach about when we were last together. Yes, there was a great opportunity. Not so sure it still exists. That's that's what he thought. Maybe it's a little rich now. What do you think? Well, um, you know, munis, the high yield muni space was off as much as 17%. Now we're off about 13. IG was off about 13. Now we're off probably nine. Uh, I still think there's value there. Underlying fundamentals in the muni market have actually improved. Uh, you know, tax uh, collection revenue is up. Um, your house, you're going to get a reevaluation sticker, so they're going to even have more com- more funds coming in. $540 billion of stimulus. Uh, if you look at the unfunded pension liability states, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, California, they haven't been in better shape in quite some time. Very seasonal market. I would tell you that uh, if you're going to play munis, probably the next three months is a good time to play them. Okay. Not a better entrance. Okay. Uh- there's considerable turmoil, I think it's fair to say, and maybe it's an understatement in the mortgage market. You like various parts of credit within the mortgage space. Yeah. How does that all factor in? Yeah, I mean, uh, the mortgage market's definitely suffered. We've had a backup in rates. We have an extension duration, but we've been very, very high quality in, in mortgages. We're buying non-agencies, which have outperformed the agency market. Uh, right now, you're getting uh, you know, durations probably five, four to five years, but you're getting yields of about 7% for AA assets. So I think it's a good hold in the portfolio. And eventually, uh, they'll catch up to the rest of the market. But how do you factor in what a Bullard, for example, says today? You, you must be gaming out what the Fed's going to do to see if these investments are still going to be good and where the various entry points may exist or where the door may shut. Yeah. So how do you think about that? Yeah, I think he's definitely an outlier. Maybe you have to go through an oil shock that we saw in 73 or 79 to get to his term rate of 7%. I mean, there's other variables out there. Energy is actually down today. Uh, you know, the two prints we had, CPI and PPI, are not a trend. They're data points. So the Fed wants to remain hawkish. They're going to they're gonna continue to raise rates. They're tightening financial conditions. Maybe this latest move was a little bit of a head fake like we saw back in June in the credit market, Scott. Uh, so we're up in quality, whether it's high yield, whether it's, you know, investment grade, we're in triple Bs. 
whether it's uh, you know bank loans, we've mm-hmm. gone up in the capital stack. A lot of people said they were going to do that. You know, now we've been doing it. Reunderwrote credits, looked at the impact on a slowing economy. How does inflation impact the uh, the companies? And we did that a year ago. Okay, got in early, ahead uh, of the crowd, uh, as you've been known to do. Uh, it's good to talk to you. We're up against it today with time and breaking news and earnings, et cetera. But it's good to see you. Thank you very much. All right, that's David Albright joining us right here on set. Up next, a meta mishap, new drama, even more drama around the social media company. We're going to break it down with a shareholder in today's Halftime Overtime next. In today's Halftime Overtime, Meta's latest mishap. Wall Street Journal reporting today Meta fired a few dozen workers and contractors this year for hijacking user accounts. And while shares have rebounded nearly 20% this month, they're still on track for their worst year ever. Hightower Stephanie Link back with us. Stephanie Link, worst year ever for shares of Meta. Down 77%, up 19% month to date. Now, with this story, what are you thinking? No, I'm not going to change my mind. I mean, obviously, another disappointing announcement. But the stock is reflecting a lot of bad news, Scott, down 68% and trading at five times EBITDA. And I think to put it into perspective, um, look, it it is bad press. So I'm not going to try and have a spin, a positive spin. But put it into perspective, they've got 76,000 employees. So laying off a couple of dozen, not a big deal from a monetary point of view. Um, And they're also cleaning house at this point. They're going to lay off 13% in total. So they've kind of gotten somewhat of religion in terms of the cost structure on the traditional business. And I'm trying to look at the traditional uh. business because that's why I owned it. That's why I bought it. I didn't buy it for the metaverse. I bought it for the fundamentals on the traditional business. And we talk about this all the time. They have size and scale in DAUs and MAUs. They actually beat gross margins and EBIT margins last quarter. And reels, in last six months, reels plays are up 50%. So they're making progress. And so that's what I'm focusing on. I'm trying to focus on fundamentals, ignore the meta. I would love for them but- to reduce cost meta. He's not going to do it. It doesn't irk you at all, though, as a as a shareholder who who says I'm focused on the core when the company has made it clear that they're focused elsewhere. Right. I mean, they're not investing in the growth of the core. They're investing in the growth of the new. And they're telling you in not so many words that that's really not going to stop. Well, I don't know if I believe that because reels is the core. And Reels is one of the big parts of the strategy in seeing some sort of turnaround once they can monetize it. And I think they will be. Who knows what happens with TikTok and the the regulators? I don't know. But they are spending a ton of money on Reels, and they have a $3 billion revenue run rate going on right now in Reels. So I'm encouraged by that. In the meantime, as I mentioned, they still have eyeballs. In their in the in Facebook in blue, right at two million da- daily active users and three million monthly active users. That's a big deal, Scott. Eventually, advertising is going to come back. I don't know when, but it is. And when it does, they're going to come back to those that have eyeballs, who have an increased time spent, who have new products that are, are people are engaged with. And I think that is Facebook or Meta at uh, five times EBITDA. We'll leave it there, Stephanie Link. Thank you very much. We'll talk Thanks, to you again Scott. soon. Coming up. We're tracking big stock movers in overtime. Steve Kovac is standing by today with that, Steve. Yeah, that's right, Scott. An insider buy from a big bank and two retailers moving in opposite direction. That's next in the OT. Tracking the biggest movers in overtime. Steve Kovac doing that for us today. Steve. 
Yeah, our first overtime mover, Scott, Ross Stores, the discount department store chain, is soaring right now, up double digits after beating the street's estimates on both lines. The company giving strong guidance for the current quarter and saying gross and operating margins came in above forecasts as well. A retailer moving in the other direction, though, in OT, Williams-Sonoma, the stock under serious pressure despite beating estimates for its third quarter and reaffirming its full-year revenue guidance. Investors may be worried about the Q3 gross margin that came in below forecasts. And the last one for you, Scott, Bank of America. The stock up slightly right now. We've got some insider buying chair and CEO Brian Moynihan purchasing nearly 16,000 shares today. The stock is down about 16% on the year. Those are the overtime movers, Scott. Send it back over to you. No, I appreciate it, Steve Kobach. Yeah. Thank you very much. Up next, Santoli's last word. And coming up on Fast Money, the former FDIC chair, Sheila Bear. She weighs in on the FTX collapse. The regulation she says is critical in the aftermath. Don't go anywhere. Overtime is right back. Twitter question. We asked which areas of the market look the most frothy right now. The majority of you saying semis. It's 47%. Santoli's last words next. Amazon, the uh, CEO, Andy Jassy, sending a note to employees just a few moments ago talking about additional layoffs at that company into early 2023. Of course, they just announced recently uh, 10,000 uh, employees would be cut at that company. It's the reality of the downsizing that seems to be going on throughout big tech. Take a look at those shares getting a little bit of a move, but we'll follow that clearly. Mike Santoli's here for his last word. It is the reality right now of these mega cap technology companies trying to right size themselves for the environment. No doubt about it. I mean, Amazon, 1.6 million employees, I think half of them hired in the last couple of years. And a lot of these big companies are finding themselves no longer having to face this like utter labor scarcity picture that they thought they were in a couple of years ago and feeling as if they're not as productive as they could be in a decelerating revenue environment. So it's going to be an undertow, I think, to employment. Um, is it going to pad up, you know, the margins? As, as quickly as the next couple of quarters, probably not that much. But it does show you they're in a different mode right now. Uh, it's no longer that we have this inevitable growth uh, trajectory. It's much more about, you know, figuring out what makes sense to pay for or not. We're talking about tech. Uh, and I wanted to segue to semis yeah. uh, off the Twitter poll. The most frothy areas of the market. Now, we didn't make it just so open-ended. You sure. can answer whatever you wanted to. We gave choices. But nonetheless, these stocks have run a lot. It 47% say those are the most frothy right now. To me, it suggests just how uh, jumpy the, that that group is, that it can cover so much ground in such a long period of time. Industrials, on the other hand, have outperformed the overall market for the last six months. They look pretty good, but they do it so quietly, and there's kind of no marquee name that's running away from you, and it's not based on you know, hopes and dreams. It's basically based on what they're able to do right now. So I do think the character of semis has something to do with that. Maybe part of the rally is based on hopes and dreams. So we can talk well, about that is. later. That's Mike Santoli. We'll see him tomorrow. As I will see all of you, Fast Money's now. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 